Hear now the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in. And through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, in the course of fighting World War II, the United States faced a pocket of resistance uh, from a somewhat surprising source, uh, namely their own soldiers and the families of those soldiers. Because as soldiers on the front lines were trying to write home, write letters, send photographs, put together packages of what they were getting as they were overseas, uh, these were all combed through meticulously. And very often, these soldiers would get responses from the U.S. War Department saying that your letters or your photos or your packages have been confiscated because essentially we're worried about some kind of intelligence leak. This got so bad that some families actually resorted to using codes in their own letters to communicate with their sons and brothers and husbands and fathers on the front lines. Now, families just wanted to stay in touch. They had to be thinking, what's the big deal? Why is this such a problem? Is this really such a concern if I tell my mom where I'm stationed as I risk my life for the country and for the wider world? But the U.S. Department of War saw intelligence leaks as a real threat because they knew that a, a casual reference to some place that they visited in a letter or perhaps uh, some product that was packaged up that was unique to one area, or perhaps something in the background of a photo would give away a location that would genuinely put soldiers' lives and operational plans at risk. And so the U.S. Department of War had to think, how can we convey the great seriousness of this threat and the real risk that this poses to the safety of people? 
And so the U.S. Department of War came up with a clear, concise, and memorable phrase or slogan to drill this risk into the minds of their soldiers. And they came up with this. You may have heard it, that loose lips may sink ships. Or sometimes this has been condensed to just loose lips sink ships. And they printed up posters and they reminded everyone to try to get this message that as little as you think this will cause a problem, so much more this can actually cause great harm and even sink the ship, perhaps even the one that you are on. Now in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, the preacher is warning us of carelessness, of negligence, of foolishness. Maybe foolishness that we wouldn't think a whole lot about. We'd say, what's the big deal? What's the harm? What's the problem? And the preacher wants to find a way to drill into us the dangers of foolishness. And so, to communicate the big idea of this passage, I've adapted and tweaked the World War II slogan into our big idea for today, that leaky wisdom sinks a kingdom. Leaky wisdom sinks a kingdom. So, three parts today. Number one, the crisis of folly. The crisis of folly. Number two, the consequences for the fool the consequences for the fool, and then number three, the catastrophe of a foolish king. So number one, the crisis of a fool in in verses one through seven. Before we look at the first few verses of our passage today, again, I, I think it helps to orient ourselves where we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, we've talked about the first half of Ecclesiastes, the first six chapters are about deconstructing vanity in this world. There's nowhere you can put your hope in in this world that will satisfy you, that will give you what you want for joy and life in this world. Don't search for it because it is not to be found under the sun. But then in the second half, in chapters 7 and following, the preacher's trying to give us a positive view for how to live in this world. And in chapters 7, chapters 8, and then chapter 9, the preacher has been commending to us wisdom and urging us, encouraging us in wisdom. And the last, this becomes uh, particularly, um, uh, comes to a fore uh, in, in the last three verses of the previous chapter, where three times the preacher says, wisdom is better in verse 16. And then in 17, the words of the wise are better. And then in verse 18, again, wisdom is better than weapons of war. And then he says this in verse 18, and this transitions into our passage. In chapter 9, verse 18, he says, but one sinner destroys much good. He's been focusing positively on wisdom, urging us toward wisdom, but now he gives the flip side and gives a warning. And so, to understand, it just takes a little bit of folly, a little bit of foolishness, a little slip of the tongue can sink the ship. So, in verse 1, he makes this in a very graphic way. He says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. You may have heard the phrase about the fly and the ointment. That's uh, coming from this particular verse. Foolishness is a fly in the ointment. It takes something that is wonderful, that smells good, that is very life-giving, and it putrefies it. It corrupts it. And it only takes a little. It only takes a few dead flies to corrupt or to cause the perfumer's ointment to give off a stench. And in the same way, the preacher says, so also a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now, The Bible actually has a lot of illustrations. We see this all over the place where you see people who largely live their lives very well, but in a moment, by some act of foolishness, some carelessness, some slip of the lips, 
and you see lives that had otherwise been ordered toward wisdom and toward honor suddenly brought into ruin and disrepair. I think one of the strongest examples of this is the story of Moses. In Numbers 20, you have the great Moses, uh, the one who uh, with a strong arm and an outstretched hand the Lord used, it was the Lord's arm and hand that led Israel out of the land of Egypt, but He used Moses to lead them. And it was by Moses that God sent plagues against Egypt to spring them from their captivity there. And it was Moses who shepherded God's people in the wilderness, and Moses By the hand of Moses that the seas were parted and Israel walked across on dry land. And again by the hand of Moses to cause those waters to come crashing down on the chariots and the armies of Pharaoh. And again Moses who patiently led this people through their murmurings and their grumblings and their groanings. Even to the point of wanting to replace him with a new leader so that they could head back to Egypt. But through all of this in Moses' incredible faithfulness. In Numbers 20, God tells Moses to speak to a rock, and out of that rock would flow water. And Moses, in a moment of frustration, why are these people grumbling again, grabs his staff and smacks the side of the rock so that water comes flowing out of it. But he says, shall we bring forth water for you rebels? He's so angry at them, and a lifetime of frustration flows out in just a little bit of folly. And it's because of that that God says, Moses, you will not be allowed to enter into the promised land. All of this has been to lead Israel to the promised land, but you yourself will never set foot in that promised land because in that moment you did not uphold me as holy. It just takes a few dead flies to ruin or corrupt or to cause a stench in the perfumer's ointment. Well, verse 2, the preacher goes on. There's more danger. The wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, with apologies to our left-handed brothers and sisters, it is universal in all places, all cultures, all languages at all times uh, that just naturally people have favored right-handed things over left-handed things. Again, it's nothing personal. This is just the way that all cultures have functioned, and that's what's in reference here. And in the Hebrew mind, it's still very true. Uh, You think of the name Benjamin. Jacob named one of his most beloved sons Benjamin. In Hebrew, that means son of my right hand because that was a a son of honor, an honorable name to call him son of my right hand. But if you remember a few um, months ago when we were finishing a sermon series uh, through the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis, you may remember that Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, before, their, uh, before Joseph's father, Jacob, their grandfather. And, and Joseph brings his sons so that Manasseh is in front of his father, Jacob's right hand, so that Jacob can give a right-handed blessing to the firstborn, Manasseh, whereas Ephraim was in front of the left hand. It was a better blessing to get the right-handed blessing. <laughs> But in that moment, Jacob prophetically crossed his arms and gave the right-handed blessing to the younger, Ephraim, instead of the older, Manasseh. And that was one more reversal in the book of Genesis that even blessed Jacob and even blessed Joseph, where the younger was favored over the older. One more time that happens because the right-handed blessing was given to the younger there. The right-handed blessing is the better. It's fullness and blessing and strength. And what we're reading here in verse 2 is that the wise man's heart is constantly, naturally inclining toward that blessing and that strength. But the fool never ends up in the right place. The fool is always lost, wandering, headed away from blessing and strength and honor. There's danger there. Well, then verse 3, 
Even when the fool walks on the road, apparently to the left, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, probably the fool is not saying, nice to meet you, I'm a fool, Uh, but rather everything he is saying is proclaiming that message in one way or another. The more you talk to this person, the more you realize that this is a fool you are speaking to. The fool can't help but advertise and broadcast his folly. Well, these are sort of some general principles. Verse 4 really gets at a crisis moment where wisdom is needed instead of foolishness, and we see vividly portrayed for us the danger of folly. If the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Here's a concrete example where your status, your safety, and your life are at stake based on how you respond to that king in his moment of anger. It doesn't matter if he's in the right or if he's in the wrong, as we've read elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, the word of the king is supreme. Don't cross him. When he's angry, don't walk away from him. Don't get up. Don't respond with calmness. With calmness, that will lay great offenses to rest. So there's this crisis moment, but then in verses 5 through 7, we also have a sort of a general example of the danger of folly in the world. Verses 5 through 7, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves." Now, the point of this is is not that folly can elevate people, and so therefore it's a good thing. The preacher, as well as the rest of the Bible, especially in wisdom literature, talks often about how wisdom is what rightfully uh, raises the lowly to higher places of honor. What he's saying here is that foolishness turns the world upside down. It inverts what is right. It reverses what is just foolishness turns the world upside down. It puts the wrong people in the wrong places at the wrong time. The crisis of foolishness turns the world upside down. Now, maybe you're listening to this and maybe you're nodding in agreement. Yes, I'm I'm sure folly can be very, very bad. But the preacher is saying this because he wants you to take stock of your life, to take stock of your wisdom and your foolishness. It was one thing for the soldiers of World War II to say, yes, I'm sure someone could get their hands on this, and maybe it could come and and cause some kind of problem or some kind of ambush or sink some sort of a ship. But it was another thing to see that their loose lips could sink ships, especially the ones that they were depending on for their lives. And what we see here is that only takes just a little bit of foolishness to outweigh a lifetime even of wisdom and honor. Now, one of the saddest examples that I've heard about that illustrates this point, that it just takes a little bit of folly to outweigh wisdom and honor, was from a story that came this week uh, that happened on a movie production set. You may have heard this story, but an actor was given a gun that he apparently thought did not have live ammunition, and in the course of making this, the gun discharged And a woman was killed in the process of this, and a man standing behind her was also wounded by this. Now, I'm not speculating. I have no idea what happened there. I'm simply pointing to the story. There you have the smallest of errors. A blank looks exactly like a bullet. The only difference is a small, tiny little piece of projectile that's included in the one and not the other. They look nearly identical. 
But here you have the smallest bit of folly, and it caused the most horrifying consequences of that. Think about how many scenes that Hollywood has made where they safely used guns in the making of a movie or a television. And here you have someone who died from this, the smallest possible error and the greatest possible price. That's what the preacher wants to get into our heads. It's not just some maybe, I'm sure it'll be fine, no big deal, what's the harm? The preacher is saying, folly can ruin your life like that, and it just takes a little. Are you listening? Are you aware? Are you taking stock of this in your own life? Folly is the fly in the ointment. Even a little foolishness can destroy much good. Foolishness is never leading toward the good, but always away from it. Now, there's so much at stake in our society as a whole because foolishness inverts the world, turns the world upside down. But the next thing the preacher is going to tell us is that there's also much at stake for the fool himself. It's not just that he's a danger to those around him, because he is, but the fool is also a danger to himself. And this comes to the second section, the consequences for the fool in verses 8 through 15. Now look at verse 8 with me. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, if you read the commentaries, people are divided about what, what kind of action they're talking about here, the preacher is talking about here. As some think this is uh, totally normal, legitimate things, just legitimate ditch digging, legitimate demolition efforts and breaking down these walls. Um, but I'm inclined to follow those who do see a sinister, malicious intent in verse 8, in the two things that are described in verse 8. So when it talks about, first of all, those who dig a pit will fall into it, Well, there's another place in the Bible, in Psalm 7, that talks explicitly about this kind of a situation, and it's absolutely clear that that is a sinister, malicious situation. It's in Psalm 7, verse 15, but let me read verses 14 through 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Here's verse 15. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. That's exactly what happens in our passage. Verse 16 of Psalm 7, his mischief returns on, upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. What I think he's talking about here is a man who digs a pit, not just as a normal part of uh, digging a ditch, but someone who is trying to catch someone, and you're reading about his mischief falling on his own head. And in the same way, it might be a totally legitimate, innocent thing to break down a wall, but this is also the kind of way you would describe a burglary or a break-in into a house. But whatever's happening in verse 8, whichever direction you would go on that, in verse 9, it's fairly clear that this is describing innocent work. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. It's hard to understand how stone quarrying could be malicious or log splitting could be bad. Here you're reading about just normal activities that also pose a threat to the one who's doing them. Now, here's how I think this works together, verses 8 and verse 9. In verse 8, the preacher is saying the fool is absolutely a danger to himself. By the wickedness and the mischief that he tries to use against others, that will come back upon his own head, which is what Psalm 7 says. But don't think that you are exempt if you are not quite the fool that the other person down the street is. Even in your normal circumstances, You suffer a lot of risk from the things that you do, even if you're not being a fool. 
If you remember the last chapter, the preacher talked a lot about this, that there is no way to manipulate God. There is no way to coerce God to give you what you want. You cannot offer the right sacrifice to the right God at the right time to get from Him exactly what you want from Him. And the preacher is holding both of these two points together in verse 9. But then in verse 10, the preacher continues and gives us another risk that the fool poses to himself. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. We're maybe talking still about the log splitting of verse 9, but the point is very clear that if you have blunt iron, you're just not going to get very far very fast. Wisdom makes your life and your work easier, less exerting, less taxing. But the fool wears himself out with the fact that he won't adopt a life characterized by wisdom. Verse 11, now we come back to this serpent imagery again. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, the way the ESV has this, it sounds like the same word is used twice, charmed and then charmer. But actually, the first uh, use in verse 11 talks about charmed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, but it's slightly different to end the verse. Literally, it is there is no advantage to the master of the tongue, to the master of the tongue. What the preacher is getting at is that you can't talk your way out of every situation. The fool is the one who's always trying to use his words to sway people around him, just like a charmer would charm a snake. Well, if you don't charm that snake fast enough, you could get bitten. And sometimes your words will not be able to talk you out of the situation you are in. And indeed, the preacher is going to go on in verses 12 through 14 to talk about the fool's words. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. It's not just that he might not be able to work fast enough. What he is saying is actually destroying him. Verse 13, why? Because the beginning of his words, or the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. The fool isn't giving something wisdom, something substantive, something wise. He is giving something that begins in foolishness and ends in evil madness. Verse 14, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The wise is always speaking with an understanding that he doesn't know what is to come, whereas the fool is always constantly speaking, multiplying his words, pretending that he knows exactly what is to come. But the summary of all of this and the danger that a fool poses to himself is in verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Um, Derek Kidner, I don't know if this is a British expression or not, but he, he paraphrases this and says, the fool will get lost even if you put him on an escalator. He's just never understanding where to go, how to get around. The fool is always confused about what is happening, and he is an absolute danger to himself. This is a hard way to live. Think about the frustration that you experience when you take a wrong turn or when you miss an exit or when you pick the slowest moving line at the supermarket. I invariably do this. Um, I'm always the one doing this. You, you know how frustrating this can be. I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone. In those situations, what does it cost you? It costs you a little time, a little inconvenience, a little frustration. But what about the circumstances where foolishness can destroy your life? There's an ad campaign, maybe you've seen it. I've seen billboards for this. I've heard radio ads for this that's appealing to people, urging them not to get a DUI, in the past, I remember, 
warnings about drunk driving, about who might you hurt by your foolishness. Now they're saying the ad campaign is, it will cost you more than you think. And it goes line by line by all the court expenses, all the fees of, uh, of legal work, all the losing your job, the losing your license, and on and on and on and on. It'll cost you more than you think. Now, there's a place for urging people not to be fools to protect those around him. But as the preacher shows us here, you also need to be self-interested. If you are a fool, you are consuming your own life. Your life is at risk from your own foolishness. And in light of what it can cost you, what your foolishness can cost you, isn't the hard work of wisdom worth it? Folly is always destructive, especially for the fool himself. But the preacher goes on in this final section to make one last important point, namely that foolishness in leadership is especially destructive and damaging to a nation. And this is where we get to our big idea that leaky wisdom sinks a kingdom. Now, the word leak is biblical. It's in verse 18. I just want you to know I wasn't totally making uh, that quirky big idea up. Leaky wisdom sinks a kingdom. And here we see the catastrophe of a foolish king. In verse 16, the preacher says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Now, Michael Eaton, a commentator, makes a really important point. He reminds us, remember, the preacher is Solomon. Or even if you don't think he's Solomon, he's clearly presenting himself as though he were Solomon. He never names himself, uh, but I'm persuaded that Solomon is writing this. And you may remember in 1 Kings 3, uh, when Solomon has just become the king and God comes to him in a dream in the night and says, Solomon, what do you want? Ask of me anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon doesn't ask for long days of life. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for victory over his enemies. Instead, he asks for wisdom. And what he says is, I am a child. I'm not able to govern over these people. And the preacher says, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. I'm not talking about someone who is young, numerically speaking, age-wise. You're talking about someone who has no maturity, no wisdom that he's governing by. And more than that, his lack of wisdom leads to dissipation and debauchery among his princes. And your princes feast in the morning. Rather than being out and productively spending those daylight hours, these princes are partying. The contrast is in verse seven, happy, or 17. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, there's a question about how to understand verses 18 and 19. Namely, are these just random um, new general principles of wisdom or is the preacher continuing to talk about the king? Now, I, I think he's still talking about the king, and I'll show you why I think that. But certainly the general principles are true as well. I think he's still talking about the king because in verse 20, he still has the king on his mind. He's going to get there. But what's he saying in verses 18 and 19? He says, first of all, in verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Now, this is true for all of us. Uh, if we're lazy, um, our houses will leak. Um, we had to do a, a building on a firm foundation campaign because this building was starting to leak and we didn't want to be lazy and let this building deteriorate. We wanted to address those problems. That's good stewardship. But remember that the word house is another word for kingdom. When God swears to establish an everlasting kingdom with David in 2 Samuel 7, in verse 16 of that chapter, he says, your house and your kingdom will never depart from me. What's David's house? It's his kingdom. 
So we're talking here, I would argue, about the house, not just the home you live in, but the household, the kingdom itself. And through sloth, that roof is going to seek in, and through indolence, that kingdom will sink. A leaky wisdom sinks a kingdom. Well, what about verse 19? Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Here the preacher is talking about the good gifts of God and the proper uses of the good gifts of God. But remember, bread and wine, that takes us back to the feasting. Uh, Verses 16 and 17. Are you using these gifts rightly? Are you feasting at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness? Or are you misusing these gifts, abusing these gifts to use them so that your princes are feasting in the morning? God has given us good gifts that we should enjoy and we should use them for the proper purposes. But if we misuse them, then that's a problem not only for the king, but even for us. And if the king is the one doing it, it's still a problem for us. But even so, even if you live in the realm of a verse 16 king, the preacher says, be careful. Even in your thoughts in verse 20, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. The point in all of this is that the more authority you have been entrusted over others, the further the consequences of your wisdom and your foolishness will stretch. If the king is wise, all the people are blessed. If the king is a fool, that foolishness will curse the entire realm. And so the question that the preacher is asking us is about your authority, the authority that you wield, whether it's a small amount or a large amount. Are you like Solomon? acknowledging that you are a child on your own and that you need God's wisdom to teach you? Are you spending your time productively? Are you burning the daylight hours well to build up your house? Are you delaying gratification and leisure and entertainment and feasting and drinking to the proper and wise time and for the proper and wise purposes? But also, in all of this, toward those who are in authority over you, are you blessing them with your words or are you cursing them? The word of the king is still supreme. A little bird will still carry your voice to him which will get you into trouble. Be careful how you live. Now, all this time as we've been studying chapter 10, I've been talking about wisdom and foolishness without precisely defining those terms. What is wisdom? What is foolishness? And so as we come to the point where we're going to apply this text to our lives, I want to urge us toward wisdom and away from foolishness as God defines it in His Word. And so I'm going to give you verses to ground what we think about what God says about wisdom and what God says about foolishness. So our our application to apply all of this is this. Be wise lest you perish in your foolishness. Be wise lest you perish in your foolishness. And this comes from Psalm 2, one of the great texts of the Bible. Um, It's one of those opening psalms that sets the stage for everything that the Psalter is going to tell us. And in Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, we read this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a very simple definition of wisdom. Wisdom means taking refuge in the Son, taking refuge in Jesus Christ. 
What the preacher has been trying to get at here, in not only chapter 7, 8, and 9, where he's talked about wisdom, but now chapter 10, where he talks about foolishness, is that there is much at stake here. This isn't a small thing. This isn't a light thing. This isn't an I'm sure it will be fine thing. Everything is at stake by the way that we conduct our lives. The preacher says that folly is a crisis with terrible consequences, especially for the fool himself, and worse consequences for any under the authority of such a fool. It's so easy to think that a little carelessness, a little selfishness, a little negligence, a little illicit pleasure won't carry severe consequences. But the Scriptures warn you in the strongest possible terms, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Earlier I quoted Psalm 7, which that was that passage that talked about the mischief coming back on the head of the evil, wicked man who, who tries to dig a pit for someone else, and he falls into that same pit. Well, I read verses 14 through 16. Now I want to read the two verses that come directly before that in verses 12 and 13. Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The picture of God here is of an avenger, of a warrior who has a sharpened sword and a drawn bow. And the point is, don't be a fool. Don't continue in your foolishness. Repent from this. Be wise. Take your refuge not in your own foolishness, which you think to be your wisdom. Instead, take refuge in Christ. Now, we see this warning amplified throughout Scripture. For example, Proverbs 14, verse 16, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Or in the New Testament, Jesus in Luke 12, verse 20, tells a story about a man who had everything and put his trust in his riches. But even that rich man couldn't delay death. Jesus says that God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The whole Bible is saying, do you see the danger of this? This isn't light. This isn't small. Do you see the danger of your recklessness and your carelessness? But there's a warning in all of this. Namely, that we should not mistake wisdom for being wise in our own eyes. We don't define the terms of wisdom. God does. Wisdom in our own eyes is not wise. There is there's a big part of us, deep down in us, that wants to see our sin as clever, as strategic, as justifiable. We want to pat ourselves on the back and, and say, you deserve this. You, what a brilliant strategy to figure out how to get away with this. But God is not deceived. Repent from your foolishness. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Leaky wisdom sinks a kingdom. Lean then on true wisdom, the Bible calls us. Again, Psalm 2, verse 12, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So what is true wisdom? It's abandoning all hope in yourself and in your wisdom, and it's taking refuge in Christ by faith. We've talked about the fear of God. 
The fear of God is on one hand being afraid of God in the sense of recognizing that you are undone before Him, that you are guilty before Him, that you are condemned in your sins before Him, Almighty God, the judge of heaven and earth. But then anyway, to believe His promises and to throw Him at His mercy, taking Him at His word in the gospel of Christ. In Proverbs 1, verses 32 to 33, God pleads. He says, For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroyed them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Flee the wrath to come. True wisdom is here in God's Word, calling us to escape God's judgment, not by exploiting some loophole from our own cleverness, but by receiving the gracious gift of Christ crucified by faith. Until you fully appreciate, recognize the danger of your, of your foolishness, it's not really easy to, to appreciate the goodness of the gospel. So long as you see your problem as small, the gospel is just as small or smaller. But when you see the bigness of your problem, the depths of your problem, the true danger that you face before the Lord, that's when the safety that Christ offers through faith becomes more precious than all the gold and the silver and the blessings that this world has to offer. How do you live your life? Is your life a constant gamble? Is your motto, I'm sure it'll be fine? Or do you see how precarious your life is? Are you running to Christ for shelter from the storms of life? Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. But are you going to Him? Do you turn to Christ away from your own ways, leaning on your own understandings, and instead putting your faith in Him, trusting in Him to direct your paths? The promise of Scripture is clear. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would give us Jesus. We pray that You would build us up in the gospel of Christ. And we pray that You would take away our foolishness and instead replace it with the wisdom of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Give us faith. For all those here today who have not yet put their faith in Christ, I pray that You would give them eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's in His name we pray. Amen.